0: Uh, If you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it now uh, and turn to Luke's Gospel. Uh, If you don't, the words will appear on the screen uh, behind us. So we're reading from Luke's Gospel today. We're reading from chapter 7 and verses 36 to 50. So that's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And this is God's Word. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgive sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So we're into the fifth week of our series called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And here in the church, okay, we spend so much time talking about the kingdom and yet not a lot of time trying to really dig in to what that might mean for our lives, right? It's the topic on Jesus' lips so often when he speaks and when he chooses to try and help us to understand it, he uses pictures, he uses stories, he uses parables, And so over these last number of weeks, we've been dropping in to these little short stories. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be continuing to do the same as we seek to see the kingdom breakthrough in our lives, in our workplaces, in our friendship circles, and in this city. And I wonder if you've ever been this morning, I wonder if you've ever been to an art gallery or an exhibition of some description with some friends before, right? And I wonder whenever you've went, if you've ever noticed how different people look at the art, okay? I've found myself uh, doing this before. We went to the Tate Modern uh, a couple of summers ago, and I'm just always struck when I get there, right? Maybe I'm kind of missing the point, right? To go to an art gallery and watch what people do, right? But I end up going, right? And, And often in places like the Tate Modern, it's like big things, like big experiential kind of things, right? And I'm always struck when you get there, not necessarily by the art, but how people respond to the art, right? You see, on one hand, there's people that like to stand back and take it all in. You know, the people, that are kind of like, sort of thing, right? It's like they're, you know, they like to stand back and view the whole thing as one big piece and then think about like how it makes them feel and how it speaks to them, you know? I I was really struck like that whenever we went to the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And it's like, there's just so much of it. It's like impossible to take in. Like every aspect of the place is beautiful. There's there's just so much going on. The only thing that I was able to do was kind of to step back and look at this thing and just kind of think about what that made me feel. In fact, my reaction was the one as, as you walk out from the Sagrada Familia around into one of the other sections there's these two massive kind of doors and they have, they have these inscriptions in many languages with little gold bits highlighted and the little gold bits that are highlighted say, thank you, Jesus. And that's precisely how I felt in front of that massive sculpture. The building is just one big work of art. See, some people step back and they like to take it all in. Other people, when they get in front of a bit of art, they like to look at the characters in the painting, you know, what it depicts, and they like to wonder about what's going on here, you know, like how were these two people in love? Did they hate each other? Like what was going on in the picture itself? Uh, And then other people, they like to look at artwork, and the question that comes to us is, what was it trying to say? So for example, if you see a Banksy piece, he's always trying to comment about some aspect of the world in which we live, right? He's trying to talk. About it, he's trying to make a commentary, it tends to take aim at different groups of people. And there and there are people who like to get right up close to these bits of art, right? The sorts of people that would start scratching it if they were allowed, right? My friend Craig was one of those really annoying people that would have done exactly that. Like when he got in front of something like that, his first question was not, wow, look at how beautiful it is. Or like, I wonder what the characters are doing. You know, his big picture was not that. His big question was, how did they do it? It was like, it was never able to be shut off. All he ever wondered was, how did they do that? What was the skill involved? involved in creating that piece of art. Or you can be like me in the Tate Modern and walk downstairs to the children's uh, play area and find that it was much more at your level, right? That was kind of how I found the Tate Modern. And As we come to this passage today, right, in this short parable, I wonder which perspective you come at as you look at it. Because it's a picture, right? Luke is painting a picture. And I wonder what way you come at it today. I wonder if you come at it and and kind of the thing on your heart, the questions, the comments that you build inside or to come at it and look at the whole picture of forgiveness and all of that that's going on in the passage and how that is a parallel to what Jesus has done for us. Or maybe you could read it and think, you know, what was Luke trying to say that maybe some of the other gospel writers weren't trying to say? What was on his heart as he watched those events all of those years ago? Who did he want to hear it, right? Or you could let the interplay of the main characters be your focus. Or maybe like me in the Tate Modern, you could just let it pass you by. What is it you're looking at when you look at a picture like this today? Well, I want to encourage you as you look at it today, no matter which way you feel is maybe your default position, maybe you've never read this parable before, maybe you've read it lots of times and it's just like, well, whatever, you know, it's not one of the big hitters. It's cool, you know, it's, it's passed you by, Right. I want to encourage you today to start to look at the people in the picture. I want you to be people that come at it and look at the characters, right? Not the big picture, not the mechanics, not what Luke is trying to say. Look at the characters today. You see, there are three main characters. There's Simon, a Pharisee, there is an unnamed woman, and there is Jesus. And they're the ones that this whole incident revolves around. In many ways, the parable strikes us as a secondary feature to the incident that goes on between the three of them. It is the the heart of this passage today, these three people. The thing is, Luke paints a vivid picture, right? For example, he notes that Jesus is reclined at the table. Now, this might sound quite strange, but this was the traditional way in that world for you to come to a dinner at a dinner party, right? So, whenever you arrived, your feet would be dirty because the roads were dusty. And so, what happened was they didn't sit as we sit with our like feet underneath the table. They like reclined with their head towards the table, but their feet away from the table. And now, every time I go to somebody's house, I'm going to ask that they bring out the chaise long, right? I will only eat. With with my head towards the table, right? But that's how they did it in that day. So whenever you read the passage, you might think, well, how did this woman end up coming and washing his feet, right? She must have been like beneath the table or doing something strange. That's not how it happened. His head was towards the table. His feet were away from the table. Luke obviously wants to preserve the detail of what's going on. And yet even in the detail, we still have an unnamed woman doesn't have a name. We don't know any more about her, other than the fact that she is an unnamed character. Now, you might be wondering how on earth she got there. I'm really glad you asked that this morning, okay? Well, to parallel it, we just moved into a new house, okay? And when we moved in, the decor, as so often in houses you move into, was not how we might have liked it, right? And one particular feature that we really didn't like was stinking blinds, right? Now, you might not, I mean, if you know anything about me, I don't really like blinds anyway. You might therefore think I'm some sort of like exhibitionist, you know, content to walk about the house with nothing on. I'm not, but... The blinds were, they were just manky, right? Like, just stinking blinds, okay? So the first thing I did when I got in was like, all the blinds have to come down. These are gross, right? I can't look at them anymore. So all the blinds did come down, right? And Joy is like going mad. Dave, I have no privacy. And I'm breastfeeding. And there could be people looking. And I'm like, what kind of weird people come and look in your windows? Well we find out within about 24 hours that all of the kids that play out in our area play on the corner outside our street. And so one night we're like sitting in our living room. It's about like nine o'clock at night. We're watching TV and I'm just, you know, kind of sitting on the sofa. And then I look at the window and at the window, there are about three small faces, just like, Looking in the window. To which, whenever I turn around and go, like, oh, you mean know, you do that sort of like, oh, you think it's like something from a horror movie, right? You're like, there's three small faces at the window. I then look around at them and go, like, and they look at me and they go, like, they t- they're talking, but I can't hear it through the window. Is the hell coming out? And I'm like, It's nine o'clock at night. Go home. Stop standing outside my window, right? And we discover within a very short space of time, as we are still learning today, we now have curtains up. You'll be pleased to, to know, right? That there is no privacy in our street when it comes to these kids. They're nice kids, really, by the way. Like, they're all, like, they are nice kids. They're all called, like, Lorenzo and things like that, right? They're nice kids, okay? They're not rough kids. They're nice kids, okay? But there's no private life, And in the world of this particular parable, there was no private life. It didn't happen. People lived with their door open. It was a common feature in the world of that time. Hospitality was a massive deal. You lived with your door wide open so people could come and go. People could just drop in, people who had need, people who were friends, people who lived around the corner. And it was a society dominated by rules around hospitality. It was just an everyday thing for people to wander into your life. Maybe for some of you, that's your worst nightmare. Maybe even in like coronavirus times, you're like, I would love some people just to wander into my life now, right? And into this scene, and for us into our lives, wanders this unknown woman and all of the rest that follows see some of the commentators on this passage remark on the similarities with this one uh, where Jesus is anointed by a woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and the same happens in both Matthew 26 and in Luke 14 okay both of them have a kind of similar episode but only Luke includes the parable and neither of the others have anything like the feel of what goes on here they don't recount an incident like this And it's this interaction between the three main characters that take center stage, okay? And here's the question today. What does it say to us today? How does it speak into your idea of the kingdom? We've been talking about what this is doing in terms of how Jesus is trying to teach into the kingdom. So the right question is to ask, how does this speak into your idea of the kingdom today? See, Jesus is constantly pushing us through parables to make up our own mind about who he is and what he's done and what he's came for. He's constantly pushing us not just to hear the story, but to ask him what he is saying to me today. So what is he saying to you today? What's he saying? As we go through the rest of today's service, as you go home from here, as you maybe made notes and you look over them later, as you maybe listen back to a sermon later on, as maybe you never intend to think about this service ever again, what is Jesus saying to you today? Because I think this parable is about two things as it teaches into the kingdom. And it's a parable first about who you see and second about how you respond. The first thing that this parable is trying to teach about the kingdom is who you see. People say some pretty annoying things, don't they? Bosses, parents, family members, your weird auntie. People say weird things, okay? 2020 has had some particularly good ones, right? For example, one personal favorite that I hope I never ever hear again is, Are you on mute? I just hope that is never a feature of my life again, right? Because I hope that Zoom is never a feature of my life ever again, right? Or that classic line that appears on Stephen Nolan every week. With all due respect, Stephen, which is really code for, I'm about to deeply insult you, right? That line, right? It's a classic. As soon as someone uses it, you know what's coming next, right? Um, Or when you are a parent and you've got small children and you're going through a tough time, you know, like they're not sleeping or there's behavioral stuff going on, there's always some grandparent or some auntie or someone in your life who sort of says someday at your lowest point, like when you're desperate and you're talking about it, they say, you know, a really helpful thing like, well, do you know what, Dave, 20 years will see a change. And all you want to do is smash the cup of whatever is in your hand over the side of their head, right? 20 years will see a change. Oh, thanks for that, wisdom. Or Joy's personal favorite, right, about the things that she most hates that I say is, well, Joy, it is what it is. She just hates that, right? She hates it. She'll come in and start with something like, Joy, it is what it is. And she's just like ready to smash her cup of tea over my head. And in there amongst some of the most annoying things I think that people say is, I knew that was going to happen, right? Really, you knew it so much that you didn't choose to tell me before it happened, but now you're telling me after. Oh, thanks so much for that. I knew it was going to happen. The thing is, hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? Hindsight is good in all sorts of ways. It helps us to be reflective uh, about the people we are or about incidents that have happened along the way. But on the other hand, it's a really difficult thing at times to bring all that we now know to something which happened before. And I say that today because it's pretty much impossible to experience things again for the first time, right? It's pretty much impossible. Or to really feel just how incredible a moment really was. Because this is one of those moments, right? What's happening in this parable today is one of those astonishing, incredible moments that the Bible narrates. But the problem is, as a Christian living in the year 2020 with hundreds of years of biblical scholarship at our fingertips, right now we're consuming more content than we probably ever have. I'm aware that this is probably the 26th sermon that you've listened to this week, right? You're nailing all the Christian podcasts and YouTube videos and all of that stuff, right? You're consuming all this content, and all of that has brought us the ability to look at Jesus through a thousand different lenses, which is really good, right? To dig into and explore it in depth and detail and all of that stuff. But then at the same time, it means that moments like this tend to just pass us by. Like because we know all that we now know, of course Jesus did what he did. It's not a surprise to me. It's not shocking. I've heard it all before. And it has this tendency to just pass us by. But just for a moment, try to step back, right? If you can, in your head, try to step back and try to listen to this again with fresh ears. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them. and She poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You see, in many ways, the focus of this passage is not the parable. Focus of this passage is what's happening right here. The parable merely explains what they encountered and experienced in person, okay? The focus is the interaction, right? So first of all, try and put yourself in Simon's shoes this morning. He's at home. He's just invited Jesus into his house, and the truth is that he doesn't really know who he is, right? He's invited Jesus around, but he doesn't really know who he is. If this man were a prophet, okay, that's the first thing that he says. If this man were a prophet, okay, so he's invited him in, but he doesn't really know who he is, right? He still doesn't necessarily get it. And the thing about Simon is, like so many Pharisees in general, that he, is very prob- he very probably did live a better life, a better, in inverted commas, life to lots of the people around him. He very likely was less sinful. He very likely did. And so it still is. And the thing that's important about that is that, try as they may the formal religion of the Pharisees, one that was shaped by laws and showing up and planned by endless rules and being good, none of which are bad things, right? If it had one problem... It was that it had no real answer to the problem of sin. Just being good, just showing up, just playing by the rules. It had no answer to what do you do with sin? What do you do with the depth of the thing that is in you that is bad, that no matter how hard you try to get rid of it and behave your way out of it, it's still there. And so, all it could do was to respond with disapproval and condemnation, and that shaped all of that particular religion, which is why he says, if Jesus really knew who this woman was, she is a sinner. And that's exactly what's happening here. He's asking himself, why doesn't Jesus get it? Jesus doesn't know who she is, what kind of woman she is, what she'd done, what her life looked like. He wouldn't let her anywhere near him. She's a sinner. And yet that's exactly what he does. Look at the passage three times, right? Three times Luke narrates that this unnamed woman is a sinner, right? Verse 37, verse 39, verse 47, right? As if to reinforce the point. It's only 14 verses long and three times it says this woman is a sinner. And every Pharisee who might have read it or heard the story would have been nodding their heads. "Mm -hmm, Yep, just right, she was. And yet three times, Luke tells us that this Jesus is the forgiver of sins. Verse 47, verse 48, verse 49. Here's what Simon missed that we can't. Yes, this woman had led the sort of life that looked far from God, like with sin and wrong and pain and brokenness. In many ways, her life is all of our lives. But Jesus, this Jesus, is the only one who can do anything about it. That's exactly why he lets her close. He's the only one. One of the things I love about Jesus, right, is that he doesn't merely just tend to comment or analyze things, right? I I get so wrung out with blogs and, and social influencers and all of that trash right I get so wrung out with it because it's just they comment and they analyze and they say things and none of them ever contributes anything positive to the to the discussion about whatever it is we're talking about it's like here's six things you should stop doing great why don't you tell me what I should do right they don't deal with the heart of the issue so much of the time I get so done with it and yet Jesus does exactly the opposite Jesus doesn't comment. He doesn't analyze. He doesn't start to go into, you know, here's what you're doing wrong. He just deals with the issue. He just deals with the issue. And that's why news of salvation is really news of the kingdom. Why do I say that? It's news of the kingdom because Luke is narrating about how evil and hopelessness in the world gets pushed back by the kingdom as it breaks into this woman's life. This woman was in a desperate situation. And news of salvation is really news of the kingdom because whenever we hear it, we know that evil and hopelessness and death and dying is being pushed back in people's lives as life comes flooding in. As life comes flooding in. You know, the power of the kingdom actually does something about the brokenness of our lives and our world. And don't we want that? As we look around right now, That we want the power of the kingdom to do something about the world as it is. Because so often I think the kingdom appears to us as something like New Zealand does or something like that. Why do I mean that? I mean like New Zealand, it doesn't have to be New Zealand by the way, but New Zealand or some far off place. I say New Zealand because not only is it very far away, but equally just about everybody I meet would quite like to go there, right? It's like it's miles away. And I'd quite like to go there, right? I know it's on the map somewhere. I've seen the pictures. I mean, we've all seen the Lord of the Rings. And it kind of makes me want to go there, right? But it's just that we don't think that we ever probably will. It's like it's so far away, so expensive. There's just no way. It's like out there somewhere. I know it's on the map. I know it exists. But I, I don't think I'll ever go there. It's just too far. Sometimes I think we think of the kingdom exactly the same way. Like we know it's out there. We know the Bible talks about it. We've met some people that have kind of encountered it in some ways. But like I just don't think my life or me, I'll ever get there. And yet the story of the church echoes what Luke narrates today of people encountering the kingdom and walking through pain with compassion, challenges with integrity, little with generosity, hatred with love, the impossible with the miraculous. And what matters is that we see Jesus for who he really is. It starts with seeing him as he really is, right? When we come to talking about the kingdom, we often jump to the sort of things that we think it means for the kingdom to break in. But the heart of it is to first of all see Jesus for who he really is, right? We've got to see him for who he is. Just look at the picture for a second, right? As Luke sees it, right? Jesus is making clear what happens when the kingdom comes. It's not what anybody expected, right? So it's not the overthrow of Rome by some incredible military force, probably heavenly, kind of out there that comes and crushes the might of Rome, right? It's not that. It's the Liam getting healed. It's sinners getting forgiven, getting drawn close to the one who forgives and made whole. And all of it revolves around him. You can't talk about the kingdom without engaging with the king. And it's Jesus. And Luke is watching all of the social conventions of the day go out the window. This woman shouldn't be here. She shouldn't be in the room. She shouldn't be anywhere near Jesus. And yet, she is. Because here's the thing. Old laws and kind of... Restrictions and observations and courtesy and all the things that were kind of there in that world, they go out the window. What comes back in? Forgiveness and love. They set the new standards and therefore they bring new expectations. People like her, really like us, appear not as the world views them, but how God views them. People like her appear not as the world sees them, but how Jesus sees them. And it brings me to the question this morning. I wanted to ask, how do you think God sees you? How do you think he sees you? Because I think what's really important in trying to see him is to ask how you think he sees you. Maybe as I ask that, you wince. You want to look away. You want to look down. You don't want to engage with it. Maybe you kind of shuffle a bit in your seat. Maybe you don't even like what you see whenever you look in the mirror at yourself. But what do you think he sees when he looks at you? You see, Jesus really saw her. One of the kind of things in our world right now is that term, you know, to be seen, to be really seen. Jesus really sees her. I want to tell you today that when God looks at you, when he looks at you, looks at all that you are, looks at the life that you've led, looks at the mistakes that have been a part of your life, looks at bad decisions and poor choices and sin and desperate hopelessness and all of the things that are in each of our lives. When he sees you, what he sees is you as you will be. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says. For we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God here's the thing all Simon saw was a prophet all he saw was a prophet with a woman fallen at his feet who should never have been there and all Jesus saw was the kingdom breaking through in a way that changed her life forever how do you think God sees you and how do you see him? He's not just a prophet. He's not just some guy that taught well and said nice things thousands of years ago. That's not who he is. You've got to deal with him for who he truly is if we're going to ask questions about what the kingdom means for our lives, for our situations, for this city. What do you see when you look at Jesus? We need to see him for who he is. Because when we do, it changes how we respond first thing this passage is about is who you see. The second thing is how we respond. This is what it says in verses 40 to 50. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Uh, so he forgave the debts to both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. She did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, as you live your life, okay, you realize that every moment isn't equal in our lives. You realize that life really is a series of moments joined up, but that all of those moments, right, all of them aren't, Equal, some of them are more important, more valuable than others, okay? Things that you go through, incidents, opportunities, things you do and things that happen to you, right? Some of them are more important and really the, the question becomes not just what happens but what you're going to do with them, right? What you do after that moment will have a huge bearing on the rest of your life. And in the parable Jesus tells, right, the parable of the two debtors, two people have pretty substantial debts, okay, a denarii is roughly equivalent to one day's wage for an unskilled laborer, okay, so one person owes just over a month's wage, and one person owes about a year's wage, right, I mean, it's a huge amount of money, and neither of them can pay, and here's the thing, both get pardoned. Both get pardoned. didn't matter uh, the one owed more. Both are released from their debt. And Jesus is saying through the parable that it is the one who owed more who loves more. The one who gets forgiven more tends to love more. And the parable led to an explanation which he makes just afterwards. And the explanation really has two contrasts. First, people, and second, responses, right? You see, on the one hand, first of all, we have Simon, <clears throat> And what we know is that he was a Pharisee, right? Practicing, committed, religious, decent type. He was probably a good person. And the thing is where we stand now, right? As soon as we hear the phrase Pharisee, we usually jump straight into like eye rule mode, right? We hear Pharisee and we go, oh, it's Pharisees. Like always trying to trip Jesus up. Religious, rule, rule-making types. We don't really like them, right? Pharisees, they just don't get it. That's our first kind of thing whenever we hear about Pharisees. But the reality is... Simon wanted Jesus in his home that day. Simon wanted him there. Simon invites him in. You see, from their perspective, Pharisees never rejected a sinner who repented. In fact, they longed for spiritual renewal just the same as we would long for spiritual renewal. It's not that they didn't want those things. They did want those things. They just tended to get bogged down in the rules and observations they thought they were required to get it. Simon wanted Jesus there to learn more about him and about his teachings. Really, Simon was a seeker, and he invited Jesus into his home that day out of curiosity, right? It's likely that in the original context, Simon wouldn't have been viewed through negative eyes, not the negative eyes that we view him with now. It's likely when this story was written, he would have been viewed in quite a positive light for what happened that day. He would have been viewed positively. Genuine interest had led him there. One commentator suggests that all of this interaction happened as it was most likely a Sabbath, okay? It probably happened in this way because it was the Sabbath. And Jesus had likely taught in the synagogue. And having heard his teaching, Simon did the customary thing as a Pharisee and invited the teacher to his house afterwards to eat with them. And then we get the unnamed woman. And what we know is that she wasn't someone of good standing. The NIV gives us a woman in that town who led a sinful life. But more literally, that phrase means a sinner in the city. And if it sounds a bit like sex in the city, that's probably a good reason. Because it's similar, right? Except way less glossy, way less fun, and way more like prostitution. So she was a woman. She was of low standing. She was a prostitute. And finally, she was an uninvited guest see, the parable was really just there to explain what was going on in the room. Both of them are now face-to-face with Jesus, the one who can do something about their debts. And what they do next will have a bearing on the rest of their lives. So how do they respond? Well, this is what it says. He turned toward the woman said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But he ever has been forgiven little loves little. See, there are two responses that contrast too. First, there's Simon. And it's not a surprise that he didn't wash Jesus' feet, right? I know that our reaction when we hear this parable tends to be like, I don't get it, he's meant to wash Jesus' feet, he didn't wash them. Actually, because he was a Pharisee, he was a homeowner, he was probably a little bit better off, he probably had servants for that sort of thing, right? There were probably people that were meant to come in and wash his feet, not necessarily him. He was the host, after all. And one commentator called Jeremiah suggested it's entirely plausible, given the way Jesus was reclining at this woman, at the, at the table at this time, that the woman slipped in before the servants could possibly get to the washing of his feet and started to wash his feet before they could start. But certainly from the parable, there is no evidence to suggest that he invited Jesus there purposely to try to insult him by not offering him hospitality. Jesus probably never expected him to do it that way. He almost certainly had servants for that. And one very plausible explanation is that they just didn't get there before she did. So then how does he respond? Well, here really is the problem. He's the gracious host. He invites Jesus in. He hosts them. He doesn't cause trouble or stir things up. He doesn't ask awful questions or really rebut Jesus when he says things. But the truth is that that's as far as it goes. It never gets personal. He's just a gracious host. And then we have the unnamed woman. And if we take Jeremiah's idea that this was the Sabbath, one probable explanation is that she heard Jesus in the synagogue, that something of his words spoke to her, broke her. And she found faith in her heart. And it was that love that led her here. That's what Jesus said. Her great love has led her here to this response. It says that she sought out to find out where he was. So she found out that Jesus was at this Pharisee's house. She obviously wanted to go looking for him. So it's likely the Sabbath. She's heard him. Something's happened in her life. And now here she is on her hands and knees, washing Jesus' feet with tears that she couldn't hold back or control. She hadn't planned them, but here they are. Something's happened in her life. And letting her hair down to wash his feet, as undignified and as shameful as it gets in those days. Kissing his feet, right? That wasn't any better then than it was now. Like, don't think that that was some sort of bizarre cultural thing. You know, they just kissed each other's feet in those days. They didn't. That was as crazy as it is now. It's the highest esteem you could ever show to another human being. Costly esteem. This was not common. This was not normal. These were extraordinary actions. And only an extraordinary love leads somebody here to do things like that. And then we have the third person. Because we can't avoid him either. And we can't avoid him now either because he was in that room as he's in this room and it's Jesus. And you know the extraordinary thing about what Jesus does in that day? The extraordinary thing about him is that he lets her. The extraordinary thing is that he lets her. The king of kings with muddy feet sat at a Pharisee's table, somebody who was more concerned about observations and rules and regulations, who didn't see him for who he truly is, with a woman who was a prostitute, kissing his feet and drying them with his hair. The extraordinary thing about Jesus here is that he lets them. Sometimes I think we need to remember that this is not about what you've done or the distance that you've traveled, right, to get here today. Today. I recognise that lots of you probably feel that you've led good lives, probably feel that you've come from good stock good stock, good family, good upbringing probably feel that you haven't led some like mad worldly life and Jesus came in and disrupted it and like turned it around and it's totally different and now you're here and you're standing in that sort of grace you probably feel like me that your testimony in some ways is, is a matter of like good things happening you found faith in Jesus it made sense to you you gave your life to him but really before it you weren't that bad right And so in lots of senses, when that happens to you, you have quite a low view of sin in the sense that it's like, well, I'm not such a bad person. But ironically, a lot of the time, you condemn sin in other people whenever you see it. And the problem with that is that it becomes about the distance that you have or you haven't traveled, right? And the issue is then that it becomes shallow in you. It's not about what you've done. It's not about the distance that you've traveled or you've not traveled. It's about the depth that you let grace plumb in your life. It's about the depth that you're willing to let God interact with who you really are. Why do I say that? I say that because otherwise we just become the gracious host to Jesus in our lives. We are less like the unnamed woman, just all out, just let loose, just untamed, crying because she can't hold it back, Doing something she probably never dreamed she'd do. She just threw herself at his feet and the rest happened. We're less like that and more like the gracious host, more like the person that invites him in, that wants him to be there because you're curious, invites him into your life. You host him, you let him speak. And we do it because we're genuinely interested. But then he's here, right? He's face to face. You get asked questions like you do today. What do you see? What do you do about him? And we never really let him get truly personal with our lives. And we just end up playing out the role of the gracious host. Which one are you going to be today? Which one are you? Are you the gracious host? Are you the person just throwing yourself at his feet? How will you respond? I'm going to ask Hannah and, and Jillian to come back up just as we, um, we kind of close out today's service. And I just think that Jesus doesn't let you away with it today, right? And I don't want to let you or me away with it either. Especially as we go through this this series that we've been in, right? I don't think that we get let off the hook because Jesus never does. He's always pushing. He's always causing for reaction and response. He's never just saying things so that you can come away from a Sunday and say the sorts of things that people say after Sundays, like "That was a lovely sermon," right? That's not what Jesus does. He's constantly pushing so that you have to ask yourself, "Who is he to you? Who is he?" And you need to answer that today because then you need to ask yourself, how will I respond? Because if he is who he says he is, if he is that Jesus, right, then what am I going to do about it? I realize that I've told this little extract um, from a book before, but um, I was prepping through the week and I just felt like the Lord spoke to me that it was for somebody today. So I'm going to do it anyway, even if it's for one of you, whether you're in the room or whether you're tuning in in some bedroom somewhere, right? because I think it illustrates exactly what is going on here and exactly how we should respond and the story's told okay um, years ago about Abraham Lincoln and about him visiting a slave auction years before he rose to prominence and became the president of the United States of America according to the legend and it probably is legend it may be true it may not be true right but it's a cracker story either way I hope it's true According to the legend, he stood at the back of the auction, and he noticed the atmosphere change, right, as a number of slave girls were paraded through the room. And it was abundantly clear at that time what was going to happen to those slave girls after the auction had finished. And this is how the legend goes, right? The first slave girl was auctioned, and the bids flooded in. Each bid, men cheered. Lincoln was repulsed by what he saw. From the back of the room, he loudly offered his bid, silencing the crowd in the process. His bid went well beyond what the slave girl was worth and well beyond what anybody else could afford. The crowd was stunned. What kind of man would pay that amount of money for a slave girl? It made no sense. The slave girl looked terrified, frightened at the prospect of what such a matter would do. The auctioneer closed the bids and pointed the slave girl in the direction of her new master. She made her way to the back of the room with every eye fastened on her. As she approached Lincoln, he looked her in the eye and simply said, Young lady, you are free. The crowd leaned in, totally perplexed. She asked what his words meant. It means you are free, he responded. Does that mean? she said that I can say whatever I want to say. Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she asked, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, Lincoln replied, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, he replied, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl paused for a moment to take this all in. And then with tears streaming down her face, she responded, then I want to go with you. And that's the choice we have today. That's the choice about what this means. That's the choice about what the kingdom means in breaking into our lives. This is the choice that we make, to choose to believe the things he says, to choose to trust him that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. And when we trust him that way, when we do, when we believe in a love like that, Our only response is to say, then I'll go with you. Wherever you're going, whatever that means for my life, whatever that means for my future, whatever that means for my resources, whatever that means for my past, whatever that means for the challenges that are in front of me or the challenges that will come because I make this decision today, that you see him for who he is and you decide to say, then I'll go with you. Then I'll go with you.